Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, it's Basha here, and you're listening to The Slow Newscast, Tortoise's weekly investigative show. So some of the more committed listeners out there might remember that we did a story a few weeks ago about a man called Evgeny Lebedev. It was by my colleague Paul Caruana Galizia, and it was about, as Paul describes, Lebedev's fancy dress rise from the son of a KGB agent to a seat in the House of Lords. It was about Russian power and influence in London and Westminster, and it was a really impressive investigation, a fantastic story, and so, deservedly, it went viral. So now Paul's back, answering a question that was left hanging a few weeks ago. For the scores of oligarchs who found safety and a haven for their huge wealth in London, who are the people who open the doors for them? Well, meet a man called Greg Barker, who has some pretty lively things to say about Paul and his reporting. Over to Paul. A grand house on London's Belgrave Square. A house once occupied by an earl, a baron and even Chips Channon, the conservative MP, diarist and social climber. But now the house is occupied by squatters. They're playing Russian music and shouting for Ukraine. because the owner of number 5 Belgrave Square is an oligarch called Oleg Deripaska. He's been investigated for money laundering, accused of threatening the lives of business rivals, illegal wiretapping of a government official, taking part in extortion and racketeering. There are also allegations, only that, uh, that the gentleman bribed a government official, ordered the murder of a business uh, rival and had links to Russian organised crime groups. Deripaska was sanctioned by the US four years ago. Britain finally followed suit after Russia invaded Ukraine because of his closeness to Vladimir Putin. His Belgravia house, with its Linley dining room table and chairs, its Bursendorfer grand piano, its paintings by Gino Sverini and sculpture by Barbara Hepworth, is now a frozen asset. There's a small group of protesters still outside. You can hear cars hooting as they drive by. I mean, there is an enormous police presence given it's just one house, not many protesters. 
it's not the only one. Across Belgravia, the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, in the leafy streets of Highgate and Hampstead, there are vast mansions belonging to wealthy Russian men. How did this happen? Why Londongrad, not Madritsky, not Parislav, but Londongrad? What deal did Britain strike with these men to make London the place for Russian billionaires? More to the point, what deal did Britain strike with itself which enabled this to happen? In my mind, is probably the single most awful example of Russian influence in British politics I've ever seen. So this is not the story of Oleg Deripaska, but the man who was at his side. You're not frightened of Mr. Deripaska? Am I frightened? No. Why would, why would I be frightened? Quite a lot of people seem to be, for various reasons, perhaps wrongly, quite a lot of people seem to be. My name is Paul Caruana Galizia. At the end of my last slow newscast, The Lord of Siberia, an investigation into Evgeny Lebedev's fancy dress rise from son of a KGB agent to a seat in the House of Lords, I felt I'd left a question hanging. It wasn't how did he do it, but who helped him. And not just Lebedev. For the scores of oligarchs who found safety, power, a haven for their wealth and the high society welcome in London, who opened the doors? You welcome Lord Barker. Who were the enablers? Thank you. What was the story they told themselves as they welcomed Russian tycoons and their fortunes to London? It's a great British success story that we attract so many companies. We are here in London, a global marketplace. Within the course of a short but busy decade, Greg Barker went from David Cameron's bag carrier, an MP's salary of some £67,000, and a stint as the government's climate envoy, to a seat in the House of Lords and the chairmanship of EM+, earning millions of dollars a year, running the sprawling aluminium giant that Oleg Deripaska had built. It's what you might call lords washing. Can we whitewash a reputation by putting a guy in an ermine robe at the top of the tree? But this is more than the standard story of the revolving door from politics into business. Because Lord Barker has proved to be, arguably, the most adroit and successful enabler of all. When the US sanctioned Deripaska in the wake of Russia's annexation of Crimea, its supply of weapons to Assad in Syria and its election interference, Lord Barker restructured and remade EM Plus to reduce the oligarch's stake and meet new rules set by Washington. And to hear EM Plus's version of events, Barker made sanctions work. He cleared out the old board, sidelined Deripaska and shrunk his stake, then set the company on a greener path. But isn't that how we all got here? By telling ourselves a story. In this week's Slow Newscast from Tortoise, we take our next step in understanding Londongrad. What deal did Barker do with himself? And how did we come to convince ourselves that enabling the oligarchs was about more than money, but for the greater good? From Tortoise, this is Greg Barker. 
the Lord's work. I first met Greg Barker in Moscow in the early 2000s. This is Bill Browder. He campaigns against corruption and human rights abuses in Russia, but was the country's largest foreign investor until the Kremlin blacklisted him as a national security threat. He's most famous for bringing about the Magnitsky Act, a law designed to clamp down on dirty money. I was a fund manager running an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund, and Greg Barker was the investment relations person uh, for Roman Abramovich's oil company called Sibneft. We were invested in Sibneft. We had identified a number of suspicious transactions. Sibneft looked like they were selling oil at below market prices to companies that were affiliated to Roman Abramovich, but weren't part of Sibneft. And we were challenging that. And uh, Gregory Barker shows up in our office with a bunch of glossy presentations trying to deflect our questions. He's recalling a moment from just before Greg Barker became Greg Barker MP. He struck me as a superficial character who was effectively an English-speaking concierge to a very rich Russian oligarch. He, he was a totally forgettable character. And the, the next thing I remember about Gregory Barker was seeing his name in some document that he was a member of parliament, which I thought was odd because how did some PR flack for Roman Abramovich in Moscow end up as a member of parliament? It's striking to me that the man Bill remembers is not the nondescript politician, but a slick PR agent for Roman Abramovich. It's a memory few people have. Instead, Parker's more often associated with David Cameron's rise to power and his efforts to modernise the Tory party. Yet, he wasn't an obvious member of Cameron's so-called chumocracy. He wasn't an old Etonian. He didn't go to Oxford. He went to state schools on England's south coast, switching for his last two years to private school at Lansing College, a small public school of ecclesiastical temper on the Sound Downs, as Evelyn Ward described it. From there, he went to Royal Holloway, one of the University of London's loosely affiliated colleges. What Barker did have is ambition. He'd made money in business, and he had vision. He married an heiress, and he saw Cameron's potential early on. They both were elected as MPs in 2001, The following summer, Barker invited Cameron and Charles Moore, then the editor of the Daily Telegraph and a man of considerable influence in the Conservative Party, for a weekend at his 10-bedroom Queen Anne house in Sussex. Over dinner, they plotted Cameron's run for the party leadership, later recruiting other ambitious young MPs like Michael Gove and very wealthy ones like George Osborne. It was a picture of the young establishment that Barker felt he had to fit into to continue his rise. My name is Laura Cumming. I'm the art critic of the Observer newspaper. Now, this is what we call a swagger portrait. Laura's appraising the huge oil painting of Barker that used to hang in his house. 
So it's where you take a member of the aristocracy or someone who wishes to be in the aristocracy. He is appearing in a painting that is absolutely intended to elevate him. What the painting shows is a timeless scene of the English country house tradition, full-scale hunting outfit. So riding boots, which are polished to within an inch of their lives. Uh, he's wearing jodhpurs, a yellow waistcoat, the hunt waistcoat, a white stock, and, you know, very highly tailored black riding jacket. Cameron promoted Barker to his shadow minister for energy and climate change, which was central to his Vote Blue, Go Green campaign. And when Cameron was elected prime minister, Barker became his climate change minister. Climate change is happening now. I've been to the Arctic. I have seen the vast stretches of open Arctic uh, sea uh, seawater where there was uh, frozen ice caps just a few years ago. Uh, During his time in government, Barker drove the increase in the UK's renewable electricity from 7 to 19%. But he was better known, in Whitehall at least, for warming a cushion in the ministerial office microwave for his sausage dog, Otto. When an anonymous complainant threatened to cut off Otto's legs, Barker protested, the poor chap is short enough already. At the end of Cameron's first term, in 2015, Barker told the Prime Minister that he wanted to go back into business. Cameron gave him a seat in the House of Lords. To begin with, Barker took his role in the Lords seriously. He voted more than 100 times in three years. He gave four speeches. I mention this because in the years to follow, Barker would insist that the peerage was nothing to do with the success of his work. The title was a recognition of his service in government, not a responsibility, a gong, not a job. And he wasn't, he'd tell people, just a lord on a board. But from his seat, Barker took on numerous directorships and jobs. Within two years, in October 2017, he landed his biggest one yet. Barker was made chairman of the Russian conglomerate EN+, one of the largest aluminium producers in the world. His appointment raised eyebrows. He doesn't speak Russian and had only spent two years in Moscow, two decades earlier. He said, I understand um, um, the Russian business culture and the challenges um, there are of that and, and what needs to be done to drive best practice. But the bigger problem was that EM Plus was 70% owned by Oleg Deripaska. An orphan from a village in southern Russia, Deripaska had conquered the country's aluminium assets during the 1990s bloody aluminium wars with the help of organised crime groups, and he held on to them with the help of the Kremlin. I, I found it highly irregular that a member of the House of Lords would be the chairman of a Russian oligarch's company, and particularly an oligarch who was so controversial that he couldn't even get a visa to enter the United States. Deripaska was more welcome in Britain, so welcome, in fact, that just a few weeks after Barker's appointment, EM Plus floated on the London Stock Exchange. It raised more than £1 billion in share sales. Welcome to, your, to the home of the London Stock Exchange Group. 
It's a great honor for us this morning to welcome the EN Plus team. This was a very major uh, IPO. It was the largest foreign IPO of the year, um, the largest of that type, I think, for three years, and was a great success for um, the many city institutions who were involved in it. Russia was happy. Here's its ambassador. This is the sign of the uh, stability of our economy, the sign of uh, growth of the economy. And I hope, uh, well, maybe next year, you know, some other Russian companies will come to London Stock Exchange <laughs> to our good friends. Thank you. Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Citigroup, Credit Suisse, JP Morgan, BMO Capital Markets, SockGen, UBS, and Linklaters. They all worked on EM Plus's flotation and provided reassurance to the newly appointed chairman. The names of the people who stand behind it gave me a significant degree of confidence in the, uh, in the process and in the company. And before all that, the company had to pass tests set by the UK Listing Authority, the Financial Conduct Authority and the London Stock Exchange itself. There were the large fees, but also the arguments that people made and no doubt wanted to believe that bringing an oligarch's company to London would bring good corporate governance to Russia. That said, there were problems with EM Plus that you had to make an effort to ignore. An EM Plus subsidiary, for example, supplied military material to Russia's defence sector, which was then under EU sanctions, that may have been used to support Assad in Syria in 2015. And there was the Russian bank, sanctioned by both the US and EU because of Russia's Crimea annexation in 2014, that held a stake in EM+. And then there was EM Plus's plan to use the proceeds of its flotation to repay a $1 billion loan to that same bank. MI6 had serious concerns about EM Plus floating in London. So did US security officials. And the questions just kept on mounting. We're just getting this from senior administration officials that they have now sanctioned seven Russian oligarchs, 12 companies. In what that could be the toughest control. penalty we have seen for Russia's interference in the 2016 US election. Just six months later, in April 2018, the US sanctioned Oleg Deripaska. And, because he owned most of EM+, it sanctioned the company too. The company's share price more than halved. It was a disaster. And Barker, well, he was shocked into action. You know, to be very honest, there was a degree of panic in the business. There was a bit of alarm in the business. Um, and, you know, I certainly considered my own position. But should he have been so surprised? Eight months earlier, in response to Russia's election interference, the US passed the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, the law called for a list of oligarchs and parastatal entities, which was released around three months before the sanctions hit. The list included Oleg Deripaska. Deripaska as an individual was a worthy and appropriate target. But the US government had not done its homework. When he was sanctioned, EN Plus was sanctioned along with him and no one had done the necessary analysis to determine whether they were unacceptable 
unintended consequences, which there were. This is Ambassador Dan Fried. Small towns, I think one in Sweden, one in Ireland, employed people in, in aluminum plants that were in danger of going out of business because of the sanctions. So then the Swedes, who had been great on sanctions, and the Irish complained, and the Treasury Department had to find a way to back out of it. He worked for the State Department for decades as a Russia specialist and crafted sanctions against the Kremlin after Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. Well, I think what they did was a, was kind of clumsy. That is the walk back. What the US Treasury did under enormous pressure was agree in principle to a plan Barker lobbied for. Dan, another extraordinary thing about the M-plus sanctions was the big lobbying effort to have the sanctions lifted. In your experience, how normal is that? Lobbying in Washington? (laughs) Right? I mean, you have to expect this. So lobbying happens all the time. You just have to be prepared to stare it down. Lobbyists can bite if they have a case. If they don't have a case, then tell them to, you know, tell them to fuck off. But in this case, the lobbyists did bite. And there were a lot of them. In Washington, the law firm Leiterman Watkins advised on negotiations with the Treasury. Mercury Public Affairs, which Paul Manafort had used to lobby for Kremlin-backed Ukrainian politicians and oligarchs, spammed US officials with supportive material. Headhunters were hired to look for new board members. In London, Barker hired public affairs consultants Hawthorne Advisors, which was founded by Tory fundraiser Ben Elliott and Hudson Sandler. All of them, in one way or another, emphasised that they did not work for Deripaska, but for Barker, or, as one EM Plus shareholder put it, the Lord. The lobbyists prepared letters on behalf of embassies in Washington from across the world. Sweden, Ireland, France, Jamaica, Germany, Australia. It's a long list of countries arguing the sanctions were causing job losses in their countries. Back in Britain, Barker, still an active member of the Lords, had just voted against strengthening the sanctions and anti-money laundering bill. He was prohibited by parliamentary rules from lobbying his colleagues. But he had an idea. He wrote to at least three MPs on an EM Plus letterhead asking for a meeting to update them on his plan to divest Deripaska. But carefully adding that he had no ask of them. The fact that a a, a lawmaker in the UK, an active member of the House of Lords, the upper chamber of parliament, could be working for a sanctioned oligarch, but not just working for a sanctioned oligarch, but using his gravitas and credibility to try to argue to have Deripaska's company taken off the sanctions list, in my mind, is probably the single most awful example of Russian influence in British politics I've ever seen. In June 2018, two months after the US had enforced the sanctions against EM+, Barker secured a meeting with Sir Alan Duncan, the Foreign Office Minister responsible for Russia. Both men say that it was simply an update on Barker's plan, 
which was within the rules. It took me a freedom of information request, fought for almost a year to get the minutes of that meeting, with redactions, because someone, presumably Barker or Duncan, had filed a privacy complaint about it. And it's easy to see why. Thanks to these minutes, we can now see some of the arguments that Barker was making behind closed doors to have sanctions lifted. Lord Barker said the sanctions on N plus had been a shock. In answer to the minister's question, Lord Barker could not offer any reason why the US wanted to go after Deripaska. Could this be true? I don't know. The US was clear why they went after him. As Senator Ben Sass said in the Judiciary Committee, He's been investigated by the US government and by other of our allies for money laundering. He's been accused of threatening the lives of his business rivals. He's been charged with illegal wiretapping, taking part in extortion and racketeering schemes. He's bribed government officials. He's ordered the murder of a businessman, and he has many links to Russian organized crime. So I think we can, in an open setting, at least agree that he's a bad dude. Right? This is a, a bottom-feeding scumsucker. From the minutes, we can tell that Barker pushed what Russia was worried about. The potential social unrest that might be caused in towns affected by a reduction in Rusal's activity and hence employment there. And that the UK was under threat from these sanctions too, because... It might be in the interests of the Chicago Metal Exchange to capitalise on the downward trend of the London Metal Exchange. Missing from these minutes, though, is any mention of the major bonus Barker was in line for if he successfully removed the sanctions. But what is clear was Barker's mindset at the time. He wanted to put his own name to a plan to solve his problem. The minutes state he was also keen to present the Barker plan as a strategic blueprint for the successful implementation of sanctions. Without breaking down the company completely, his proposition would ensure a better governance structure, removed from the control of Russian oligarchs. The Lord's plan. For him, it would show how sanctions could work, how the West could benefit, and Russian influence be diluted. But is it really that clear-cut? It is almost impossible to know the impact of that meeting. But what we do know is that Barker was, ultimately, successful. His blueprint worked. On the 27th of January 2019, the US removed EM Plus from their sanctions list. What is Mr. Deripaska's ownership of, of oh, what's his block of shares um, as a percentage? It's on this infographic that um, I can share Just with you. It's 44.95%. 44.95%, for the, for the 44. but he no longer is a controlling influence on the company. And that with 44.9% of the company. No. You're saying you don't work for Mr. Deripaska, but Mr. Deripaska has voting rights for 35% of the company. Correct. And I'm a simpleton, but you know, if you own a third of a big company and everyone else has a minority share, a small minority shareholder, aren't you still the dominant person? Well, but not in the view of the US Treasury. Barker went from chairman to executive chairman and got a $5.9 million bonus, which he described at the time as relatively modest. This on top of his $1.9 million salary. Now, you can say what you like about Lord Barker and why anybody would be working with Deripaska under any circumstances. I get that. But once we were in the position, there had to be somebody to to manage the divested company. Now, if I'm wrong, and it turns out that Deripaska is exercising effective control, then Lord Barker is in trouble because this is a form of sanctions evasion. 
And I think OFAC would look dimly upon this and probably go after him. But I'm assuming that he, because he knows this and he's no fool, he is unlikely to have sought to circumvent the sanctions, in which case he has a defense. That was Dan Fried again. On paper, Deripaska wasn't controlling the company. Barker was. He called the result... A real triumph for good corporate governance um, in London. It how, wouldn't how, have, we wouldn't how, have been able to do that, I don't think, yeah. if the company hadn't have been listed in London, hadn't been subject to the UK code. As he saw it, he brought riches to London and removed the company from oligarchic control. It was a win-win. But Deripaska's position wasn't as diluted as Barker made out. His plan kept to the letter of the law, but, I think, broke its spirit. Deripaska's position was governed by what were known as the Terms of Removal, a confidential document signed by representatives of Deripaska and a senior US Treasury official. The terms allowed large chunks of shares to be transferred to his allies, including to his own charitable foundation, another sanctioned oligarch's company, and his own family. If you take all that together, the document shows that Deripaska, his charity, his ex-wife, her father, and the company linked to the family could own up to 57% of EM+, under the deal that Barker secured. In other words, the money very much stayed in the family. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. Senior business leaders in the UK are keen to harness AI, but there's a complex regulatory maze emerging globally. The OECD, a group of the world's richest countries, which includes the UK, has adopted a new set of principles to ensure that AI operates in a way that's safe, fair and trustworthy. The principles are wide-ranging, but in essence calls for AI systems to be designed in a way that respects the rule of law and human rights, and says there should be transparency around their use. By embracing the core principles of responsible innovation, UK business leaders can better explore sector-specific opportunities and emerging trends without compromising on citizens' trust. Find out more at ey.ai. Barker insists that his strategy is, in his words, a blueprint, 
for the successful implementation of sanctions that it improved corporate governance and distanced oligarchs. And he insists there was never any conflict of interest with his membership of the House of Lords. The thing is, right after the sanctions were lifted and his role came under increasing scrutiny, he took a leave of absence from the Lords to focus on EM+. As I understand it, that means that you're no longer bound by the code of the House of Lords? Um, strictly speaking, I suppose that would be correct, but I would certainly intend to honour the code if you're asking. As allowed when on leave, Barker stopped registering his business interests, paid employment and shareholdings. There was no longer any way of knowing whether he had a conflict of interest, because his interests were now hidden. But he kept his title and remained extremely sensitive to further scrutiny. I know this because after Tortoise published my first report on Barker in 2019, his lawyers sent many long letters on his behalf claiming we'd defamed him and that we'd breached his privacy and copyright. You often see that uh, letters come with as many potential claims put in as possible, written in quite dense legalese language, often very outlandish claims of how you've behaved as a journalist and that the, the, the claimant has been you know, woefully wronged and uh, has um, some incredible amount of damages required to, to remedy that sort of distress. This is Susan Coftry from the Foreign Policy Centre, where she researches slaps or strategic lawsuits against public participation. It's a form of abuse of the law in order to shut down um, or suppress information in the public interest. So that could be a journalist investigating a story or it could be people protesting or speaking out in some other way that's trying to challenge um, or provide scrutiny of those in power. And we usually see sort of tactics involving drawing out procedural manoeuvres or different uh, ways to basically rack up the cost involved and, the, and, and draw out the process. And the names that do come up, like Schillings, like Mishkondorea, Taylor Wessing, Carter Ruck, Coburn Kim and others, these are you know, the names that come up when journalists are talking and, and giving examples of, of what they perceive to be abusive threats. The first letter came a day after we published the report. Within three weeks, Shillings, the law firm, was claiming around £40,000 in legal costs for writing four letters. The defamation complaint resulted in two very minor amendments to the report. The tactics became increasingly outlandish. Shillings threatened legal action against sources who went on the record in my report unless they signed statements renouncing what they told me. Statements written by shillings. Barker's lawyers claimed he was independent of Deripaska and that it was defamatory to suggest otherwise. And then I got a legal letter from Deripaska's lawyer, Paul Tweed. His client, it seems, reads Tortoise and didn't like being described as a feared oligarch. There was one more letter and then silence. Barker and Deripaska, neither of them followed up anymore. The story and the threats had died down. It all went quiet. Until the 24th of February, 2022. Russia invaded Ukraine 
and Barker came under pressure to resign from EM+. Whatever the optics, Barker said, he had duties to the company's employees, including several thousand in Ukraine. He said he would not shirk that responsibility. Gregory Barker doesn't have any employees. Gregory Barker is a member of the House of Lords who is chairman of a publicly traded company. It's disgusting that Gregory Barker will remain in the employment of somebody who's on all the sanctions list for being a Putin partner when innocent women and children are being butchered and killed and exploded under Putin's bombs. Every other responsible person, even questionable people, have pulled out. And Gregory Barker hasn't? And what kind of man is this? Two weeks later, the UK finally sanctioned Oleg Deripaska. The London Stock Exchange suspended EM+, and Barker announced his resignation. It had all come crashing down. But he didn't actually leave until the end of March. He remained in control of EM+, whose largest shareholder was still Deripaska, for a full month into the war. Why not sooner? EM Plus was, it said, exploring the possibility of carving out its international business. In other words, looking to keep the non-Russian parts separate. A process that Barker was exploring himself while still at the company. I don't know what he would carve out. This is Bill Spiegelberger, an American lawyer who worked for Deripaska in Moscow for 10 years from 2007, dealing with all legal risks coming from outside Russia. Carve-out, Bill explains, is unlikely to work because everything is connected. So you have to dig the bauxite out of the ground, you have to process the bauxite into alumina, and you have to turn the alumina into aluminum. Aluminum production, because of the electricity, requires vast quantities of electricity. So think of it. Where do you make aluminum? Where you have the electricity? Where do you have cheap electricity? The cheapest would be hydroelectric. Where is their cheap hydroelectric electricity? Siberia. And the bauxite that comes out of the ground in places like Guyana and Guinea, Australia and Kazakhstan, that has to be shipped to the plants. So you see, it's a... It's, a, it's quite a complicated and international process. So I'm not sure what Parker's talking about. It's certainly not about dividing the company into east and west. But although Barker's left the company, I understand he may still try to raise funding to acquire and then manage some of its parts. One of his fellow Cameroons told me, the thing with Greg is he always wanted to be a country squire. The old rectory in Sussex, the sausage dog Cecil and Percy, it needs money. For several months, I have tried to speak to Barker. I asked for an interview almost a month ago. He didn't respond. I emailed again two weeks later. He didn't respond to me. And then, just before we published this podcast, Barker sent us a long statement. Most of it was devoted to the article I wrote about him in 2019. The previous profile was so biased and so strangely personal, it was clear from the get-go this podcast's damning conclusions had been written well before any research had begun. 
this would be less remarkable were there not quite so many deadly serious issues at play in the world today. The unprovoked invasion of Ukraine with its gut-wrenching consequences has shocked the world and almost overnight completely reshaped the geopolitical landscape. Having formerly had responsibility for nearly 4,000 Ukrainian employees who now find themselves right in the conflict zone, this war is very personal to me. Given the appalling turn of events, there must be a serious debate to be had about commercial relations with Russia in recent years. The efficacy of Western sanctions policy, and perhaps the whole question of any future trade with Russia. But you won't find it here. Instead, the authors have pursued a weird personal attack, including a bizarre obsession with a picture given to me as a private gift over a decade ago. This is a rehash of the previous frivolous written profile, which wasn't just sneering, but also had a clear undertone of homophobia. I hope this podcast does better, on that score at least. On the substance of his work at EN+, Barker said... In respect of EN+, and my former leadership role specifically, in light of events, it would be only right that any historic involvement with Russia should now give rise to serious reflection. But this is not it. However, one thing is for sure. While the decision to work again with a Russian company was not taken lightly, I remain proud of much of my work at the world's leading producer of low-carbon aluminium and clean hydropower. And I am grateful to have worked with some truly outstanding young colleagues who are still committed to making the world a better place. There is still a very long way to go to reach net zero, especially in a traditionally heavily polluting sector like aluminium. But however bad the geopolitics, fighting climate change must remain a worldwide effort. And at EM+, we made a real start. Lord Barker ends his statement saying this. I hope and pray for a swift end to this dreadful conflict, as do so many people in Russia too. But I can safely guarantee that I won't come out well from this crude hatchet job. However, to any truly objective listener, nor should tortoise. Oleg Deripaska's Belgravia mansion, now frozen by UK sanctions, may symbolise the end of an era for Russians in London. But for some MPs, like Labour's Liam Byrne, this is just the start. We want to topple London grad, you know, this place that is the great laundromat for dirty Russian money. And we can see it now toppling. And what we have to do now is push harder and faster. So I think if we had tougher regulation on proxies here, that would actually give us the power to, to turn the tables on many of these enablers. And look, if, if, if the enablers aren't in London, the oligarchs won't be in London either. It's kind of as simple as that. They're not here for the weather. It's tempting to dismiss this as the wisdom of hindsight. But even before Ukraine, Crimea, Syria, US election interference, Oleg Deripaska's companies held a murky history. These issues were plain to see if you chose to look. The enablers succumbed to more than misplaced optimism. There was a willingness to look away. What now will be the story we tell ourselves? Britain may be in too deep. The dealer did with itself 
attracting investment by waving through Russian money can't be undone with sanctions alone. It created a new class of enablers who have already cashed out and are already exploring new opportunities. This episode was produced and reported by me, Paul Caruana Galizia, Matt Russell, Katie Gunning. The sound design was by Carla Patella and the executive producer was Jasper Corbett. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Slow Newscast. If you're not already a Tortoise member, I'd love to invite you to join to get even more slow and considered journalism, as well as invites to exclusive newsroom events by using my code, Paul50, to become a member for just £50 a year. Visit tortoisemedia.com invite and use the code Paul50. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. Senior business leaders in the UK are keen to harness AI, but there's a complex regulatory maze emerging globally. The OECD, a group of the world's richest countries, which includes the UK, has adopted a new set of principles to ensure that AI operates in a way that's safe, fair and trustworthy. The principles are wide-ranging, but in essence call for AI systems to be designed in a way that respects the rule of law and human rights and says there should be transparency around their use. By embracing the core principles of responsible innovation, UK business leaders can better explore sector-specific opportunities and emerging trends without compromising on citizens' trust. Find out more at ey.ai. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.